resource designed to help form substantive disciples for a local church. My name is Hannah. I'm on staff here at High Point, and I'm here today with Pastor Nick. Hey, guys. <laughs> You'd think, after all, how many times we've done that, we wouldn't have that lag. I was thinking about making some comment about you being almost done creating a human. Yes. I mean, that's true. Any day. It could be any day. Yeah. Um, so we have to get an AMA in before that happens. Um, so that's our agenda for today. We're finally going to go through our AMA questions. Ask me anything from the last seven months. <laughs> <laughs> and starting with Advent, um, we have some questions from the Advent series in December, and then we're hoping to get through some of our January sermons as well. And then to be determined for when we'll cover the ones between end of January and now. It'll happen. Yeah. It'll come. Good things to those who wait. So let's just jump right in. Um, I'm going to try to limit you as we go through these Advent ones in particular. This is the challenge, the Advent challenge, 90 seconds per question for real. All right. Oh, I thought the whole podcast was that it wasn't, didn't have to be that, but I'll do my best. I know, but there are a lot of questions. Um, and I think these are doable in 90 seconds. Okay. I think you can do it. Um, so I'm going to signal you when we have a minute left. I know, so when you hear, a time So when you hear Nick start speaking even faster than normal, you'll know that he has only 30 seconds left. Okay. Question one. One issue that came up in our small group discussions is related to 2 Timothy 3.12. Uh, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. If we're not being persecuted, are we not living godly lives? Though trying to live godly lives through trying to live godly lives, has fear of separation or caricature caused us to dampen our witness? Okay, so the the passage from Scripture is everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it's stated in the affirmative as though it was absolute, right? So um, now it's possible that, like, for example, the thief on the cross who got saved, like, right at the end didn't ever get persecuted for his faith in Jesus. Like, there's surely mm -hmm. some extenuating circumstances in which some people just are not going to find opportunity. You know, like, if you get saved just before you die of something right. in the hospital, you may not get persecuted for your faith. I think what I think normatively though, if you're a Christian and you live in any human culture that is affected by worldliness, the flesh and the devil, which would be all of them, which would be all of them, then you're going to face some level or intensity of persecution. Mm -hmm. For some people, it will be total to martyrdom. And for others, it will be what others, other Christians at other times might consider relatively light. Mm -hmm. But I think you will at least face the disapproval of those who don't believe and they will dislike you because of what you stand for, mm -hmm. and it will lead to persecution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so I think yes is the answer to that question, normatively. So thinking through, if you're not experiencing it, could that be because you're not in relationship with non-Christians, or because you're, you are and you're compromising, or like what, how can we diagnose if we're, mm -hmm. what's going wrong if we don't feel like we're experiencing that? Yeah, so I think some people are just kind of like, look, I'm just being shrewd and kind in what I do, and so I'm not ruffling that many feathers. But I mean, what, one of the things that it's important to realize that Jesus seemed to believe he was doing it right, mm -hmm. and he said that we won't be above him. So he seemed to believe that if we were doing it right, we are going to make people mad because we're going to we're going to. There's no way to be kind enough, soft enough, shrewd enough, contextualized enough that people aren't going to hear what you're really saying. Mm -hmm. And if you're telling people the truth, John 3 is very clear that like um, Jesus came as a light to the world and men love darkness. 
And so if you're, if you're dealing with any human beings for whom that's true, then it's, you're, you're going to be an offense to them. Mm -hmm. And that just is what it is. So I would say, yeah, if you are consistently never facing persecutional reverse attitudes towards yourself from people, then yeah, there's probably something going wrong. You're probably maybe towing too lightly, not being direct enough. Mm -hmm. Um, it may be that you're worldly and you don't even really realize you mm -hmm. are. And so you're, you are like them mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't, the problem is, is ho real holiness is threatening to sin, mm -hmm. right? And to people who are emotionally invested in it. And so if, if you're not threatening the people just by your mere existence and by telling the truth, then there is something amiss. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So I think normatively, yes, is the answer. And then if, if it just isn't happening at all, then yeah, I mean, that's, that would worry me. Yeah. That doesn't mean everybody has to hate you. A lot of non-Christians <laughs> are going to like you. There's a lot, there's, I mean, Jesus was liked by plenty of people who did not believe, but people in power, people who you end up speaking against, people who are personally invested in either power structures or injustices or violence or idolatry that you're like, I don't believe that. And I don't think that's right. Mm -hmm. Those people will feel threatened by you and care to do something about it. I would love to ask follow-up questions to that, but mm -hmm. I'm going to try to follow my own guidelines and move on. <laughs> Um, from the December 12th sermon, um, are there times when grumbling is needed to get the attention of someone about an issue? And this, in this sermon, you distinguish between groaning and grumbling. Yeah. So I, I define grumbling as complaining against some perceived authority concerning your pain, accusing them of mismanagement, incompetence, wickedness, bad motives, or disinterest. And, um, now, it is possible that you could be under an authority that does something that you are hurting because of, and it, it, it appears to be because of mis mismanagement, incompetence, wickedness, bad motives, or disinterest. Um, and so in that sense, I think the answer could theoretically at least be yes. Yes, that there are some times when grumbling is needed. Is needed. I think in that case you would want to consider carefully the biblical category of complaint mm -hmm. like what and look at passages in scripture in which there is a complaint made before God and how that complaint is made mm -hmm. there's a number of psalms for example in which that's the case and it's made in a way that is highly respectful you know mm -hmm. so i i think i would i would say it's i wouldn't use a category of grumbling i would look for the subcategory of complaint okay and and I would recognize you need to be very self-controlled because you, if you're going to, if you're going to accuse somebody of mismanagement, incompetence, wickedness, bad motives, or disinterest, and they are in right authority, then you have to do it in as respectful a way as possible. Mm -hmm. And so that's what you have to do. Okay. Right? Here's a related question. How do you help a brother or sister who seems to be stuck in grumbling and complaining to move towards groaning instead? Um, I, I mean, I guess I would, I would look at a different one is, is that if they're a believer, there is just the command of God, mm -hmm. like the God, what God tells us to do. And that, um, if we do it, then we'll figure out how it's good. Um, part of it is to, to try to help people see what it's doing to them and helping people see how it's not constructive. Mm -hmm. Grumbling of this kind is usually not constructive. Um, it usually promotes self-righteousness and other things that are very fleshly in their nature. Um, I'd bring them back to Jesus and the apostles to how they handled conflict in the scriptures mm -hmm. um, and what it looked like for them to, to disagree in public. Sure. 
So, yeah. And I think, I think also like I, I'd want to look for what there is to affirm in the grumbling of mm. the person. Mm-hmm. Um, and to try to say, okay, there's something between groaning and grumbling you might call complaint. Mm-hmm. And let's get clear the difference between grumbling and complaint. Mm-hmm. Like, like making, making an argument, almost like a legal argument of like, this is what I believe is wrong and has to change. Mm-hmm. That is complaint and grumbling, which is, because when I say grumbling, what I mean is coping with your pain this way. Mm-hmm. So when I say grumbling is complaining against someone's perceived authority concerning your pain, accusing them of mismanagement, incompetence, weakness, and bad motives or disinterest, your pain is concerning your pain is a key prepositional phrase. Okay. So you're accusing them of mismanagement, incompetence, weakness, or bad motives or disinterest as a way of coping with your pain. Sure. Complaint is making a complaint against an authority accusing them of mismanagement, incompetence, weakness, bad motives, or disinterest, but not as a way of coping with your pain, but as a way of, of constructive engagement right. with the authority that's behaving badly. In with an attitude towards trying to solve the, a problem mm-hmm. versus... Yeah, so for, for example, this week I sent an email to Dane County Mental, Dane County Health Department about mm-hmm. the mass media, like a, a situation I thought could be governed differently. Mm-hmm. And I was very careful to make it a complaint and not a, not a grumble. Mm-hmm. I wanted to grumble. I did have pain concerning it and I wanted to be freed from something that I thought was an unnecessary restriction. Mm-hmm. But I phrased it in a way of like, would could you consider doing what I think is right for these reasons? Yeah. And then they promptly just said no. And then <laughs> I didn't turn around and grumble at them. I was like, right. okay, the, I, I don't know what else I can do constructive right now. Right. So I'm going to think about that. Mm-hmm. Great. Thanks for that example. Uh, Next question. This is from the December 19th sermon. We know Job's afflictions were allowed to happen because God allowed Satan to attack him. How can we know the reasons behind our suffering? Is it our sin or is it that God allowed it or is it both? Yeah, this question is a little bit tough because in in Job, for example, there's the the wrong assumption that if you're suffering, it's because you were wicked. That all of his friends made. Right. All right. of his all, all of his friends made that assumption and argued it for multi chap multiple chapters. Right? So many chapters. Yeah, and it turned out that that was wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. That Job wasn't totally right and they totally wrong, but Job was way more right than them, and there that assumption in particular was bad. Okay. However, throughout all of the rest of the Old Testament, there are Many, 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 I mean, dozens of examples of people suffering pain because they were under the temporal judgment of God. God was punishing them for their wickedness and trying to get their attention. So simultaneously, the Old Testament in practice demonstrates that we can suffer because God is trying to get our attention. We're suffering temporarily as a form of judgment that is meant to be either punishment or correction or both. Mm -hmm. And yet, to simply presume it, as in Job's case, turned out to be a damnable offense. Right. Job had to pray for his friends for them to be not condemned by God for their wickedness, right? So what do we do, right? And the answer is, I think the only thing that you can do is, so Job exists so that you you can know what's going on with you even if you don't know what's going on. So you know that what's true about God is what happens in Job. Job doesn't have to tell us, because remember, you're Job in the book of Job, Right. right, Job doesn't know, and Job's friends don't know. So we are observing from God's perspective. We get to see what God is doing, and then we we see the book of Job very differently than Job saw it. Right now, in real life, we are Job. We're in the thing, and we don't see. 
And so what we're going to be tempted to do is to complain against God and to grumble or whatever, right? And so we have to realize that by reading the book of Job itself, that is how God prepares us to be Job or to be the sufferer who doesn't know why this is happening. Mm-hmm. Now, is God judging you when you've done something wrong? Well, I don't know. I think maybe the old saying, if the shoe fits, might be the best one here. Mm-hmm. Like if you are doing things that you know are against the explicit commands of God, you're you're engaging in idolatry, you're committing sins and wickedness, you are you're engaging in injustice and you're utilizing violence or any of the group of those things, you are going against the Lord. And so either you are banging your head up against reality and receiving the due penalty of your perversion to quote Romans one, just because of the way creation is, mm-hmm. right? Or God is judicially acting either to punish you or more likely to correct you Mm -hmm. so that you'll change. Right. And so I would say when you know you're doing something against the Lord and bad things happen, that's the grace of God, whether he's punishing you no matter what, like by not confirming your bad path, Mm -hmm. God is acting in love, no matter how he's doing it. Right. And that the result should just be to repent and turn around. Right. Um, If you are, if something bad is happening to you and you truly have no idea, why it could be happening to you, then maybe that's not the right way of thinking mm-hmm. that it's like, it's because of something. It mm-hmm. may just be, cause there's, it says in Hebrews, we should receive all hardship as, as discipline, meaning training. Right. And so sometimes like I I'll punish quote, I'll quote punish my volleyball team when I was a coach mm-hmm. by making them run and run and run and run and run. It wasn't because they were bad. It was just, I was training them to do better at the next game. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think that there are some sufferings that we go through that are training or that God uses later in his providence or that changes our character. And if we go, Oh, it must be God's punishment. Then we actually get the wrong view. Cause mm-hmm. it said what it says in Hebrews 13, I think it is, it's like, he's doing this cause he loves you. Mm-hmm. Of course that's true. If he's punishing you too, he's doing cause he loves you. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, you know, if you're in this situation and you're trying to discern, am I doing something wrong? That's incurring the discipline of God. You can also ask trusted Christians around you for perspective, right? Of like, I'm going through this. Um, do you see something in me that you think could, could be related to this or. Yeah. And so like, but one of the ways this comes up is something like, is the coronavirus God's judgment? Sure. Those kinds of questions. And I find those really difficult to answer mm-hmm. because... Do we deserve s- the judgment? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're like, is there enough global injustice that we deserve the coronavirus? Oh, yes. Like, yeah. we deserve, like, something much, much worse. But do I know that this is an act of God to right. do something? I, I really don't know. I do think it's an... I do think it's, quote, act of God and that God is providential over it and he's going to use it in all kinds of ways we don't understand. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't go on the news and say, listen, we wake up America. This is God's judgment because I don't, I don't know that I can do that. Mm-hmm. Good. Next question from the same sermon. They say, you mentioned that we have trouble seeing our sin as abhorrent. What are some practical ways that we can actively see our sin for what it is? Yeah, I kind of find this one a little bit difficult, but, um, in one sense, like experience should be plenty. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes when we're the recipient of sinful actions, it's much easier. The more mad you got about what people did to you, the more abhorrent you already believe it is. Right? Sure. Um, also, I mean, scripture is there for that specific purpose. God talks about like why a lot of sins are bad. He shows us in a lot of stories of the Bible, what happens if you do certain things and 
by seeing those results, we should be able to say, oh, wow, yeah, this is really a terrible thing. It produces these really bad things. Um, the more you grow in godliness, like you study the character of God and what it looks like to be to pursue holiness through faith, the more you'll see the ugliness of what's evil, mm-hmm. right? And and uh, that should help you see mm-hmm. the evidence of it. So I would say just like just growing in Christian discipleship, learning more about God and what it means to know him, and then you'll be able to see like why why evil is evil, mm-hmm. why wickedness is foolish, ugly, stupid, and wrong, mm-hmm. and so on. So, um, yeah, and, and just like pay attention. I, th- I think it's partly selfishness and pride by which we don't see the real costs other people are paying for our behavior mm-hmm. and our choices and our beliefs. Mm-hmm. And if we cared, like one example is I, there's a lot of there's a lot of Christians that are not particularly moved by living in a culture in which like pornography is so rampant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they really haven't grappled with the fact that we are a, we are committing mass child abuse on boys by sexualizing them starting at an average age of eight is the first time mm-hmm. an American boy is exposed to pornography. And it usually becomes some, something of addic- an addiction into their twenties at least. And then we go, Oh, and then there's all these other like women are objectified and then be women. And then men behave as though they're objectifying women when they have been objectified by this societal ritual, sexual abuse we put on them. And then we wonder why they would want to sexually abuse the women in their lives when they have been objectified as the objects of sexual abuse and then they sexual abuse the women, some of the women in their lives. And this goes on and on and then we go, but what's the big deal about pornography? Mm-hmm. It's just people looking at people and it's done freely. And why shouldn't these women make this money if they're sex positive enough to do it? And it's like, well, because you haven't yet grappled with the horrific destruction mm-hmm. on a global scale that it's wreaking upon all people. Right. And because you have your head in your sand about this. And I've seen this like with like very conservative women right now, there's this like anti purity movement. Like, don't tell us to be modest. Don't tell us we can't wear like V-neck shirts and stuff. And like to a certain extent, I'm very sympathetic towards that because mm-hmm. the purity movement focused on women a lot. And they're like, you know, if men really think the way they think, like that women are always these sex objects, like they're, they're like, they're like sexual abusers. Like they're, they're broken. And the answer is, yeah, yeah. We've been sexually abusing them through pornography for generations now. And now digitally starting at age eight. What, do you, what kind of men do you think you're getting where you allow that? rampantly in a culture you will, like at what part what, what at what point downstream from sin do you want to stop and say this is where it becomes wrong right mm-hmm. so i think that um like i've told guys before i was like they're like yeah you know it's kind of bad but you know what i was like well do you want to be a john i mean you're basically creating a culture of prostitution in which you're engaging in it like a pervert is that what you want and like people get really hurt when you use that kind of word and but like sometimes you have to call things what they are before you can like right. abortion is the dismemberment of human children. Mm-hmm. It's the murder and dismemberment of human children. Like if you call, if you keep calling it by a euphemism and it's a quote procedure on quote cells or something, you know, good luck feeling any moral weight about it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, and, I mean, you've seen, you've seen people try to do this culturally with things like racism, whether they've been, they've tried to like use words like white supremacy and white privilege. And they've tried to use words that are much more evocative of like emotional, like, Oh yeah, that's really bad that's really bad, right? Oh, like white supremacy sounds a lot worse than just like just racism, Mm -hmm. right? And the the idea is is we're trying to come up with evocative language that's describing something a step deeper Mm -hmm. so that you can like conceptualize the wickedness, Mm -hmm. right? Well, that's kind of true for all sin. Like uh, CJ Mahaney once said, don't say, um, 
I was prideful. Say, God, I was fighting against you for your to try to steal from you your own glory mm-hmm. in what I just did. This reminds me of something you've said before about how to apologize well. Mm-hmm. Of like we often euphemi- euphemize our apologies and yeah. we soften them. Like um, I'm so sorry if what I said hurt you. I didn't mean it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've talked before about like use strong language mm-hmm. to describe what you did and explain why it was wrong and why it was an offense mm-hmm. against them as image bearers and yeah. against the God who created them. Yeah. If you yeah. don't describe your behavior in the worst possible light, you will by nature describe it in the least worst light. Right. And that neither honors a person you apologize to nor humiliates you sufficiently for your mm-hmm. own misbehavior. Right. You know? So yeah, I think the way you apologize is another example of, of seeking to see your sin as aberrant. Mm-hmm. But I think also you want to say, correspondingly thus so is god glorious right that he has no part in any of this wickedness and that he has called us to a life without it in 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 the life that belongs to him Mm -hmm. and that like without the corresponding glory you you do become a gloomy person which is unhelpful too so i'm trying to summarize um grow in discipleship um of beware your euphemisms Mm -hmm. um and don't neglect meditating on the glory of God and his goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also convert your offenses mm-hmm. to understand you as offender. Right. So the best way for you to understand how, how bad a perpetrator you have been in your life is to pay attention about when you think you've been the victim mm-hmm. and how you feel and what that makes you think and how you, and then realize everybody else feels that way about you. Yeah. Right. You know, Okay, last from the Advent series. What are we supposed to do if we're being exploited by a group of people? First, make sure you're right. Because sometimes there's a complex interrelationship and where you think you're getting a bad deal in one way, you're actually getting a privileged position in a bunch of others. Mm. And you really need to understand the dynamic before you get too upset. So, for example, uh, male-female income inequality in America is mostly a functional myth, though it's true. So men and women who work the same number of hours in America on average make different amounts of money. They also do different jobs. They have worked them for different lengths of time. They're different levels of dangerous. There's different, 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 right? So is it different? Oh yeah, it's different. Do women get a quote worse deal? Yes. Is it because women are getting better deals in other ways? Yes. And you need to understand all those ways before you know you're being exploited, right? So for example, women are more likely to do jobs that they like than Mm -hmm. men. Because men are, men generally think I have to make enough money to support this family. Women generally think I'm going to do something that I enjoy mm-hmm. that makes some money, right? This is why they become social workers and things they imagine it'll be meaningful work. They tend to choose meaningful work over just work that gets you there. So there's all kinds of things. Now, if you're right about being exploited, then I think engaging in, in um, groaning and complaint um, and also seeking solidarity with other believers in that complaint mm-hmm. is good. I think that you should engage in that. I just don't think grumbling, that is complaining as a way of dealing with your pain. I think that leads you to behave emotionally and self-interestedly in a way that people of reason and conscience won't listen to you, right? Like when I when somebody says, look, this thing is wrong. We need to do something about it. And it's clear that they're like not giving themselves a free pass and they are considering me and them then I feel really cut to the conscience and be like, you know what we do. But when they're, they're just raging, there's, there isn't enough discipline, clarity or objectivity for me to take their complaint seriously enough to act. I don't know what to do. And I, I know that their prescriptions are probably wrong. Hmm. And so I'm not going to do what they say. 
And so I think that you do want to say something. You do want to make a complaint, but not as a grumbler. Okay. All right. We made it through Advent. Hey. <laughs> Next question is from uh, our January 2nd ser- sermon, which Devin preached. Yes. So we'll give you some grace. It wasn't your sermon. <laughs> uh, in the sermon... Devin said that sometimes you need to stop looking for a way to get out of the hole and just endure divine punishment. When should you start looking for a way out of the hole? Do we just wait for the punishment to end? Yeah. So I'm reading this story to my nine-year-old daughter right now called the, the princess and the goblin by, by George McDonald, George McDonald. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's this place where one of the protagonists, Curdy, who's a miner, is trapped by goblins in this cave and he keeps trying to get out and he can't get out. And there's this little hole of light he keeps trying to push on. But the goblins have stacked everything up against the wall. And when the princess is finally guided by the divine figure, the great-great-grandmother, to find him, she digs him out. And then he comes out and says, we need to get away. And she says, no, the string of divine guidance goes deeper in. Hmm. And so they go back into the place where he was imprisoned Mm -hmm. when he didn't have any light. And now that he has a torch, he goes in and he finds there actually is a passageway at the back. And she takes him through that and they come out in a completely different spot that was much more beneficial. And they find out more about the plot of the story. Hmm. And so sometimes I think what Devin was getting at was this. If you keep, so here's what happens. When I sit down with somebody for counseling, they'll come in, they'll say, Pastor Nick, so-and-so happened. How should I deal with it? And I said, well, have you done anything yet? And then they're like, well, yeah, I did. And what happens is, is that bad thing A happened, right? And then... Because they acted sinfully for bad thing A to happen, they tried to make up for it by doing bad thing B. Mm-hmm. So then they sinned and did something else. And they keep, and what happens is you keep digging yourself deeper and deeper in because you keep functioning more and more pragmatically and more and more desperately. Mm-hmm. And you move from idolatry to sin to injustice to violence, right? You're willing to do more and more on your behalf. And so I think what Devin was saying, there's some point where you just stop trying to fix it yourself. Mm-hmm. And you accept that God is, in, is, is causing you to fail on purpose. And then you... And I think where he says receive divine punishment, I think what he's saying is like, just stop trying to fight God's restraint of you mm. with all this pain and just stop for a minute because God is going to provide another gracious way forward, but maybe not the forward you think or not through the passage you were expecting to get out. Mm. And so God wants a future for you. He has a way forward. And sometimes by by stopping fighting God and just receiving the punishment, being like, no, you you know what, you're, you're, God, you're right. I was wrong. I deserve this. I deserve way more than this. And you repent. The moment you repent, it's like a, it's like another door opens, mm. and you find there's another way. Or the hard path you knew you're gonna have to take all along, right. it becomes so worthwhile in your eyes because you see that it's good. Right. You're willing to walk it. So I think he meant something like that. Okay. All right. Let's transition to questions based on the sermon that you preached um 16th on the 16th of january related to justice and you were talking about how the church should be political but not politicized yes right so the first question is our statement nick is right that in america and many other nations we're 80 years removed from atrocities of the state on the scale of tens of millions but what about nations where that's not true like in the middle east or in china apart from the problem of solving such injustices is there value in facing and wrestling with them since we are sheltered from those experiences here yeah and the answer is absolutely yeah um i think that one of the things that i that I did in college when I was kind of growing in my faith was I read a, a bunch of Christian biography. A number of, of those books were from people who had been under the Soviet system. 
And I just learned an awful lot about pain, suffering, persecution, facing the state, mm-hmm. being interrogated, being tortured, and how people had survived and grown in their faith and found God's joy in the midst of all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And that stuff is going on right now in China, right. North Korea, Iran, other places in the Middle East, and um, Afghanistan. It's one of the worst places right now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, studying across the world, sort of synchronically, is has similar effects to studying it through time that is diachronically with the addition to the fact that you often, that means if you go across the world, you end up studying cross-culturally people of other languages and ethnicities. And sometimes seeing similar human experiences with Christians of other ethnicities and cultures can even be more beneficial than me, for example, as a European American reading Christian biography of European Christians in Belarus or Romania. So yes, is the answer to that question. Absolutely. Uh, next question. You mentioned that the church proclaims truth. Do we proclaim truth for societal renewal or do we proclaim an alternative kingdom to join? If your answer is yes to that either or question, then can you address how society is renewed apart from a public movement of repentance and salvation? Yeah, I said a couple weeks ago that, I, or actually I think I said on this last Sunday, that I didn't think it was possible to end injustice and violence without repentance from idolatry and wickedness. So those four things that come up again and again in Ezekiel, that idolatry leads to wickedness, wickedness leads to injustice, and injustice leads to violence, right? To say, well, we don't want injustice and violence, the the third and the fourth step, where we don't want to do anything about wickedness and idolatry, I don't think that'll ever work. Now, we can say, I agree this injustice is an injustice, let's do what we can to stop it. But the injustice flows out of wickedness which comes from idolatry. And if you don't deal with those things, you can't ultimately deal with the injustice and the violence. So on one level, I agree with that. I do think we, we are certainly proclaiming an alternative kingdom to join. And that I think that is primary. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I, I think oftentimes we're going to do it in relationship to the context in which we're preaching, in which oftentimes some kind of social thing will be something we will talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so, I, so for example, when Christians preached about slavery, in ages past, I think that that made sense. I think that there are all kinds of historical injustices that Christians said that's not right, and it enhanced the Christian message. But I also think the problem is, one of the problems we have is societally, there's lots of different ways to solve different problems. Mm. And when Christians get too focused on singular solutions, like single-payer healthcare, or a specific kind of reparations, or government-instantiated employment for all, or whatever... I think that we. I think it's that's really difficult because I think the Bible is intentionally written and inspired by God to not favor certain governmental, social, and justice regimes because the Bible will be believed and the gospel will be believed by so many different people in so many different cultures under so many different governments that to give a single sort of governmental prescription creates the problem that frankly we see in Islam that like you're supposed to have a certain kind of ruling class in a certain kind of way things have to be done and the bible resists that i think intentionally and rightly because it jesus sought to be globally believed in right and so until he is king his faith can exist under many different human regimes and so taking two steps towards justice in central china might look very different than taking two steps towards justice in central america or in the center of america in the in the midwest and so Christians are going to have to contextualize that. And I, I think because of that, it's also going to keep us from being too dogmatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to lead to disagreement sometimes among Christians who want to apply the gospel socially. I mean, just recently we had this 
this bill in the Wisconsin State House that was meant to mitigate the negative practices of teaching too radical a form of of critical race theory. Mm -hmm. And it basically said you couldn't engage in racial stereotyping or gender stereotyping in teaching in public accommodations like schools and businesses. Mm -hmm. Now, on one level, some Christians were like, this is great, right? This keeps people from race shaming in our schools, which is very Christian and, and undoes an injustice that's happening. And then other people were like, this is terrible. This will be used to shut up everybody who wants to say that there are race inequalities because they'll call it a race stereotype and then sue the pants off anybody who tries to teach any truth. Mm-hmm. And so you had Christians, I think, who were legitimately or really sincerely on both sides of whether or not that would, would have been a good law. Mm-hmm. Um, and it basically came down to whether or not you voted for Democrats or Republicans for the most part. And mm-hmm. that was really sad. That's sad for me. But at the same time, I see, I don't think Jesus... I mean, maybe Jesus laments that because of the way we're all just divided. But I think at the same time, I don't think Jesus goes, oh, these people are for me. These people are against me. Mm-hmm. Both of them wanted justice and truth. Right. But what they thought would bring about justice and truth was very different. And frankly, I don't know who's right. And I certainly am not going to judge who's right. So I think that there is a limitation to how much we can prescribe policies. I think sometimes and even endorse candidates. Mm-hmm. Whereas we can say things like this thing is wrong and shouldn't be. And, but then I think we need to get less dogmatic about how to, how to help, right? Like, like racial inequality, racial inequities in schooling, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, most of the people I consider to be reasonable about those issues believe that there is an interrelationship of 10 or 12 different issues. And it's not easy to pick which one will change everything. And so as a Christian, I want to say, well, let's help. Is there like, what can we work on? Mm -hmm. As opposed to being like, well, it's all the black family or it's all just racism and white teachers. Or I just don't, I don't think either any of that stuff is holistically the thing. If we just change that one thing, all the rest of it would get better. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So I, so my answer is kind of, it's kind of both and, but it's also either or Mm -hmm. in the, hopefully the right kinds of ways. Okay. The next question is... Wait, sorry, before you go ahead. Yes. Which means, again, Christians, we have to resist being captured by any political ideology or mm-hmm. ideology of the world because then it keeps us from, from saying yes and no in the right way according right. to what Christ teaches. Mm-hmm. Right. So if assuring that everyone has access to education in order to care for themselves is a spiritual issue, isn't healthcare for all equally spiritual? But the person says this has become a political issue or is it both how should we look at that yeah Yeah, so i so i said in the sermon i thought that so i I said what would be an issue of like justice in our present moment that you could link to the bible in some kind of way that you might be able to pursue some sort of policy and i said in the old testament land was redistributed every certain number of years so that everybody had access to an agricultural living Mm -hmm. you weren't you weren't given a living but you were given access to the tools you need or the means by which to make a living for yourself, mm-hmm. right? And so I said, in a post-industrial society, what would be the equivalent to receiving land, right? The, the agricultural asset. And I think that the corresponding thing to the agricultural um, capital would was human capital that you are invested in so that you can do things. And we accomplish that through education. Mm-hmm. And so, and I mean, I mean that broadly, I don't just mean schooling. I mean, trade schools, apprenticeships, anything that would build human capital in you. And so I I think the distinction between that and universal healthcare is that one is access to the capacity for a living or an end that you require. Mm -hmm. And the other is an end that you require. So when we say, quote, access to healthcare, we don't mean access to healthcare. We mean healthcare. 
Sure. So if I say, well, poor people need access to healthcare, that doesn't mean poor people have money and they want to buy healthcare, but they can't even buy the healthcare because they're not even allowed in the hospitals or clinics. That's not true. That question of access has to do with their ability to pay for it. So those are not the same thing that those are apples and oranges. Now, is it an issue of of being humane that healthcare should be provided for people in a quote, rich society? Well, first of all, I'm not sure seeing society as having corporate wealth is actually philosophically necessary or biblical. I think that private property is affirmed in the Bible and therefore wealth is held by people, not by societies. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if we live in a quote, rich society, but that those riches are held in co- among human beings in their private property, then the society isn't rich. The society has people that have assets and wealth, mm-hmm. right? And so um, I don't I don't think that's a good way to reason. However, I do think that there's a humanity of corporate relationship that we're supposed to have to our neighbors by which some level of quote healthcare is quote owed to our neighbor. And so, for example, when the Good Samaritan in the parable of Good Samaritan, when people walked by this guy that was beat pretty much to, to death on the road, Jesus is assuming that they're, even though they didn't even know each other, that the bond of humanity between them was sufficient that they should have done something. Mm-hmm. So there are social bonds that we have to each other that would say that we should do something. But this gets into a much more complicated relationship of close social bonds versus exchanged corporate bonds, where um, I, th- I think it's Gesellschaft, Gemeinschaft is the German for it, where like there are certain societies of close, natural, familial type relations where people f- don't calculate their interchange with each other. So like my in my family, I don't say... How much has, in my exchange with Jude, my 14-year-old son, has he taken more than he's given? That's mm-hmm. just not how it works, the family function. Whereas when I put together, even at our church where I care about everybody, I still put together like pay scales for everyone because we there's an agreed upon exchange of pay that's part of our relationship. And so in a society, you have, societies don't function like families. They function through exchange. And then can you argue that they should therefore, quote, provide healthcare for everyone? So that gets a lot more complicated. But I think I think what's actually poisoning the the universal healthcare debate in America is by not distinguishing levels of healthcare. I think that if you said, "Doesn't everybody deserve a basic level of healthcare?" and you created a basic, just humane level, mm-hmm. I think almost everybody would go for that. I think that what there's what what is happening politically is is that the political left in America wants to say, literally everybody should get the same healthcare, whether you've you have been a productive person or not. And I think people see that as actually, um, as actually an, an inequality and an injustice. Because if you are a very productive person, and you want to use some of that productivity to buy better healthcare for yourself, that that's one of the things you want to achieve with all the work that you do, to be put in equal footing with someone who has not been productive and yet can just take that healthcare. I think people see that as an injustice whenever healthcare has any kind of scarcity, and you know healthcare is scarce because it's expensive. I mean, that's how we get expensive things. They're scarce. And so, um, yeah, I think that there's huge philosophical problems with that. But I think that, I think that I don't, that doesn't mean that I think that there is no responsibility between human beings and Christians towards others in the realm of physical care. I think there is. So in that sense, it is a spiritual thing. Yeah, I do. I think it is. But I, I think equate, I, I don't, I would, I wouldn't the argue same the same way. way. Right. I would argue differently about it. Okay. But yeah, the idea that we're supposed to feed the poor right. and not let people starve if they're at all willing to work, right? Like if they can do whatever they're willing, whatever, if they're willing to do whatever they can do, 
then we should make sure people don't starve. Mm -hmm. If people are not willing to do what they can do, the Apostle Paul says they shouldn't eat. But the hardworking farmer should be the first to share in the crops. That is, anybody who's willing to work, whatever is produced by that work, they should be the first to get some. Mm -hmm. So wage slavery is morally wrong, biblically speaking. But paying like a welfare wage to somebody not willing to work is immoral, biblically speaking. Right, mm-hmm. the, in the in the seventeen eighteen hundreds in America, it was called the difference between like misfortune and indolence. Right, right. Misfortune is the widow, the fatherless, and the widow. People who, from no fault of their own, have been put in an economic place where they can't provide. They can't provide for themselves, mm-hmm. as opposed to the indolent, that who does not wish to work, or who, through immoral actions, has put themselves in a position where they're suffering for it. Mm-hmm. Biblically speaking, there isn't the same inherent um, requirement to help those who have through choices that predictably would lead to their personal destruction to help them. Mm-hmm. However, I think there is biblical argument to help those people graciously and mercifully, but it's not the same to help an orphan or a widow is an issue of justice. They deserve for us to help them. Somebody who has destroyed their own life and is asking for help. We still as Christians have to help them, mm-hmm. but on a different principle, the principle of mercy. I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but you're making me think of the passage where, um, I believe Paul is describing under what conditions you should help a widow. Right. Um, like depend, there are some age restrictions. Yeah. Um, does she have a family that could take care of her? Mm-hmm. In which case that shouldn't be a burden on the church. It right. should go to the fault of the family first. Yeah. Um, do you see kind of overlap in those principles as well? Yeah. I mean, Roman Catholics have, have used that passage on the list of widows. I think, in, I think it's in first Timothy to argue for the concept of subsidiarity, which is that things are least corrupt and most wholesome when we deal with problems on the closest level of responsibility. Right. So, so the issue should be handled in the family before the church in the church before the state and so on. And I agree with that for sure. And I, I do think I, in some ways it's just a practicality. Like, you don't, but but it also gets to the issue of, of Gemeinschaft versus Gesellschaft. Like, if if you're in my family and you need help, I know what's enablement and what isn't. Sure, I'm much more likely to know that than the church is. Right, and the church is much more likely to know that than the state is. In that sense, based on that biblical principle, it would wipe out the entire regime of welfare entirely, because it, it would argue that the state and the, especially the federal government is the least positioned to know how to help people truly in a way that is not enabling to human dysfunction. Um, now, that doesn't mean that I don't think Christians can vote for Democrats or for policies in which there is public welfare on the federal and state level. I just think they shouldn't sneer at Christians who believe that that's unwise. Mm-hmm. And I think that some Christians will find it unwise mm-hmm. and they will do so on biblical principle. Mm-hmm. Okay. We have one more question. Oh, but before, before, oh, before we get off that, I want to make this sort of pro-Democrat point because sometimes people yeah. think that I just think the Republican points are better. Um, in the Torah, the the uh, system of using part of the tithes for the poor is a federalized system, mm. right? The money goes to the temple, which is the central government of the society and is dispersed through the temple. And so there is also precedent for a federal social safety net in the Torah as well. Yeah. So, and I'm not saying that the Bible is co- is contradictory. I just think that there are multiple principles in scripture for social welfare and how to care for people without enabling people. These are very complicated issues, and I think the Bible has numerous principles built into them. And I also think that the the church, as it was dispersing in little tiny clusters throughout the Roman world, mm-hmm. was a different entity in how it was functioning than the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so the the um, 
the continuity and discontinuity in those passages is relevant to it. We just can't go deeper right. right now, I guess. Right. Um, all right. Last question from the January sermons. It seems that favoritism of any type always leads to division. Isn't there a danger in trying to redress past injustices by showing favoritism? And the person gives the example. I think this was, you were discussing, um, how we've given assistance to certain majority minority churches in mm-hmm. Madison, but you said you wouldn't necessarily do the same thing for a majority white church. Yes. Um, so example, supporting majority non-white in cases where we would not support majority white churches. Uh, is there a danger that we would create different divisions? Yes. Of course. Yes. How do we know that that danger is worth take like risk worth taking? How do we weigh that? Yeah. So uh, I think that this gets back to there's, I think that there is the possibility of an equivocation fallacy on the word favoritism here. Like, why are you showing favor? Right. Is it, is it like racism? Like this race is better than another race. And so I'm going to favor the race I like, Mm -hmm. or is it like situationally, I'm going to do this for this person rather than that person. So for example, there are things that I will do for, I don't do everything the same for my children, for example. Um, That unequal treatment could be seen as like giving favoritism because one person might say, well, I like what you're doing with that kid better than this kid. Mm -hmm. That's not the point. The point is, is I'm using the resources I have to do everything I can to make all of my kids flourish, Mm -hmm. giving them what I think they need. Right. And so um, I think that, so for example, in the average white church, let's let's say you have a white church and a predominantly black church and they both have a hundred people in them. The average white church is going to have, is going to get per, per giving unit, that is a family or a single person, whatever, on average, between $1,800 and $2,600 per year. And so you can just take that, you know, 100 people, that's maybe 50 giving units, and you can multiply that by $2,000, and that's what you can expect their budget to be. In an African American church, or predominantly African American church, that number is about half. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, that's just a reality that I know exists. And now uh, black churches and white churches are trying to buy their own building. Well, which is going to be more capable of doing that? Well, obviously the white churches, right? So if I want churches to be able to own their own buildings, right? I may find that I don't have to help white churches. A healthy white church can afford their own building. But because of these same economic pressures of of simple math that I have no control over, I know the black church is going to struggle a lot more to buy their own building. Well, but they're healthy in all the other ways. Right, they're leading people to Christ. They're empowering people in the gospel. Their people are growing in holiness. They're worshiping God. Right? Okay. So everything else is there. Then it may be worthwhile to show quote favoritism to the black church, but it's because of a measurable, fundamental, clear difference. Right? If there was a legacy of racism in America, but the giving units in the black church were the exact same as the giving units in the white church, I don't think I would sure. help the black church. I'm not doing it because I feel bad. I'm doing it because I'm supposed to use all my resources the best I can to grow the body of Christ visibly. And partly because of the history in America, African-American churches don't have the financial, the same per giver financial capacity on average, Mm -hmm. right? Now, if I was interacting with an African-American church in town and I knew that on average, their average giver gave twice as much as my church, I wouldn't help them financially. Right. I might ask them for help, you know? (laughs) So... So it's so I I don't think that what we're doing literally is showing favoritism. Mm-hmm. I think that what we're doing is trying to help the body of Christ grow as circumstantially as possible, looking at each circumstance and then right. helping where it is. Does I that think, make sense? Yeah, I think that's an important thing to note is that you're not 
This isn't a general principle that you're applying uncritically. This is a general principle that you're starting with and then you're assessing on a case by case basis. Correct. Um, That does that apply here? Um, Yeah. And and I know some of our African-Americans, like I remember uh, Vanessa, I think McDowell, McDonald, McDonald's her name. Um, She said at one of the marches, she was like, you know, you should, you know, white churches just buy black churches buildings. And I, th- I think I know where she's coming from. She's, she's like, just generally, systemically, there's a huge asset difference here. And black pastors are doing just as good work and black churches are doing just as good work. If there was equity in this, that it would work. But like, I don't think it would be wise for white just to just go out and buy a random black church a building. What we've tried to do is, and in many cases as possible, look for healthy African-American-led ministries and try to help those ministries prevail. Because what it also do is it, it helps lead to healing spiritual growth in the black communities. And it's helping... It's helping subselect leadership for people who are doing successful ministry rather than people who who can get notoriety for some other reason. Right. Right. So because I'm not interested in whether or not you can be really loud publicly as a pastor. What I'm interested in is are people coming to faith? Are families being saved? Are you know, that's what I'm looking for. And when I see that, I go, that's that's who we need leading the church multi ethnically in the whole city. So yeah, I mean, in that sense, I think the danger is I am assuming I'm qualified to determine who should be leading. Sure. And it's kind of like Winston Churchill said about democracy. It's the worst form of government except all the others. <laughs> the way I seek to fund other churches is the worst way I know of except for all the others. Right. If I knew a better way, I would definitely do it. But right, right now, this is the best way I know. Right. Relationships. Would it, would it be better if you had a policy that... Regardless of who asks, you give this percent or this amount. You just no. give to everyone who asks. That'd be terrible. Yeah, yeah. And there certainly are like like if like if a blue a blue collar white church pastor came to me and said, "Hey, we're leading people to faith. Our giving per unit is like four hundred dollars a year. We have people who are in, they're getting off of drugs, but man, our AA group is killing it. Our divorce care group is killing it. Like we're doing all these ministries to people. We're you know we have we have this thing for sexually abused women. This house that we could just barely afford. Shoot, man." I would be like, oh, we de- you're darn right, man. We want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. So, so in that sense, like, is it? But is it just going to be the case that we're going to end up helping more minority majority churches? Yeah. And why is that? Is it because minority people are inferior and so they just can't give any money because they don't get good jobs? No. If you trace it back far enough, like, it's going to connect with our history of discrimination and racism as well as other things. I mean, I think I think that like. There's a number of liberal policies in America that harm the black community too, but I don't think that's all that's harmed these minority communities. And some of them are just, they're just immigrant communities. They're just, it's going to take a couple generations for them to catch on in terms of wealth in America. And in two generations, this African immigrant church will have more money per capita than most white churches. Mm -hmm. Well, great. But right now they can use a little influx of capital and, and that's worth doing because in two generations when they have more money, if the church isn't strong, they will have secularized. And mm-hmm. so we'll have Nigerian or Central African Republican immigrants who are making $160,000 a year because they're now scientists and they don't believe in Jesus. Yeah. So at the end of the day, like, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't, I don't care what color anybody is, but at the, at the same time, I'm not going to be blind to the history of the dynamics of things that have happened. And, and race is correlated to that and deeply connected to it in a number of ways. And I just think we have to be as holistically honest as we can. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Um, we have a couple questions related to COVID specifically coming out of that justice mm-hmm. sermon. So first, how does acting justly apply with COVID restrictions that are currently in place? Should we be loving others who are at risk by obeying current mandates or breaking ranks by acting on our own? 
Oh, man. Uh, yes. <laughs> Great. Next so, question. <laughs> yeah, I really struggle with that question because it it depends on a number of assumptions. So, and it also depends on where your snapshot is in the outlay of COVID. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in the first three months of COVID, I think that my emphasis would have been much more on the loving others at risk. Mm -hmm. At this point in COVID, two and a half years in, in the Omicron strain, recognizing that virtually none of the vaccines, all the vaccines are now obsolete functionally until we get new ones. And we're, we're talking about booster shots forever. And there's a lot more research on other treatments. Some of those treatments arguably have been suppressed and are costing many, 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 many lives around the globe, for example. Um, so for, let me give you a really, a really straightforward example that's close to my heart. Um, in the pastor network that Manohar James and I work with more than 25 pastors died. This is in India, in India. This is like a a group of maybe 300 something pastors. Mm -hmm. So it's a significant death rate. Right. And, um, what was happening was, um, the only treatment available, there were no vaccines available for people at the socioeconomic class, but this was far enough into the pandemic that we could have known that some of these early treatment drugs that were repurposed and were super cheap mm-hmm. actually were working. And that was suppressed by the American governmental system in our FDA, in our, in our CDC. Mm. Because of those suppressions, the Indian government organizations and people in India and all over the world that didn't know that drugs like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, some of these in high, higher levels of corticosteroids and so on, which were repurposed drugs, a few dollars right. could make Common enormous accessible. differences if tr- if you treat it at the right dosage early. Nor did they know that things like higher levels of vitamin D can make major differences in the effects of viruses on our system and so on. And so because of that, like literally thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people died that didn't have to, including these pastors that I have looked in the eye mm-hmm. and tried to support in their ministries. And so... The, um, and if and I know some people listen to this will be like, Nick, have you do you even pay attention to the news? Like all of that is like false news, fake news. Um, I mean, just you just need to look into the uh, the Uttar Pradesh miracle. Like there's a state in India that used literally just ivermectin and literally eliminated COVID from their entire state, and this is a mm-hmm. state of like 240 million people. So some of the stuff it, we like we could have had a both and gig, and we didn't. And um, so on one level, I'm like, yes. People who are at risk of COVID, if wearing a mask could help them, then maybe that would be helpful. And I think we can do things like that. I think that horse is probably out of the barn at this point. And I think the moral, what it, what is the the moral um, preponderance is, has probably shifted at this point. And so people who are now not wearing masks are recognizing things like children developing without being able to look at that at facial musculature of other humans is really a, a really terrible thing. I mean, human mm-hmm. beings take in a huge amount of our capacity to read, understand the feelings of become empathetic towards other humans by reading their faces, mm-hmm. by cutting off two thirds of our face with a mask. It's really detrimental to human conversation, human interaction. Good. Like you really hearing what I'm saying, children understanding and learning how to talk. Well, mm-hmm. Like there's there there are costs to all of this that we don't want to talk about. Um, closing schools was another example of a catastrophic example mm-hmm. of well we need to be careful about those at risk, and we did what was really not in the best interest of children all over the country and world. And and now that seems to be better known. And so this this last year we we kept the schools open. I heard I can't remember the statistic, but a terrifying percent of the Chicago public school 
students just disappeared. Like they yeah. just never showed up back to school right. after the schools closed down. Yeah, and and then you know with the with with the teachers like going on strike again. I mean, just imagine how catastrophically bad that is. So, um, so so yes, I like I, I so when things first started, like remember High Point Church, we closed down before the state made us. We made that decision on our own that the best thing to love our neighbors was to close the church. We took. We, we worked with our schedule in case we were going to have to open up the church to be a makeshift hospital. We just didn't know how bad this was going to be. Yeah. And we prepared our staff to give up their work in the church and serve hand-to-hand to people who might be dying when we thought this might be Ebola. Mm-hmm. Okay, we had no idea what it was going to look like. And we said we need to prepare to die serving our neighbors. Okay, so there's no lack of interest on our part to do whatever was needed to help the vulnerable. Um, the problem then becomes what, how these things get administered. And why and what are the what are the um what's called externalities so when you allow a doctor to say we're going to have this as our public policy when politicians are supposed to be weighing a hundred different questions i mean the number of people who have died because of the economic downturn um suicides loss of jobs the destruction of marriages how that's turned into anxiety disorders and depressions how that's going to create a wave of new dysfunctions in children that are being raised right now in times of stress and anger that has flowed from our economic decisions around COVID, what we did to ourselves that the, the disease didn't do to us, but what we did to us, mm-hmm. um, asking people to keep wearing masks that we know scientifically don't do anything like cloth masks that aren't surgical masks. I mean, the Bangladesh study seems to have shown conclusively that cloth masks makes no difference in the rate of infection. And that was in Delta. That was before Omicron, which is much more virulent. So cloth, so either we shall be wearing N95s or none at all. That still hasn't been accepted publicly yet. So there's a lot of this stuff that's kind of, and, and there, and the people who say, for example, that children shouldn't get vaccines, they're not saying it because they want old people to die. They're saying it because they're concerned about the long-term effects on children's immune systems and so on. And they're just not thrilled about kids having to get a new vaccination shot every five months for something for a virus that's literally built to not be vaccinable against. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the problem with some of these questions, like, like questions of poverty before or healthcare is what you decide to do Christianly is partly, it, it ends up being a prudential question. And so what you think scientifically and what is the best public policy and all those things, you have to merge that with your Christian principles and come up with your decision about what should be done. But you see, there's very different conclusions you can come to about what the scientific truths are or the epidemiologic or whatever. And so when you put that together with your Christian principles, you're going to come up with very different conclusions. All the people reasoning could be Christian and believe in biblical principles and even have them balanced correctly Mm -hmm. and still come out with very, like for me, I've had six or seven different views over the course of the pandemic. At first I was like, look, we're all going to have to die helping our neighbors because we need to lay down our lives for anything that they need. And now I'm to the point where I'm like, listen, the mask thing's pretty much a charade at this point especially under Omicron, I don't think it's wise to give vaccines to people who don't need them. And I think that we should focus more on corporate health and herd immunity rather than like a vaccinational based system um, that is being, that is functioning politically to divide human beings in ways that are terrible and have very detrimental economic consequences and issues over spending. And like, there's all these externalities that are really harming people. As, as well as like getting people fired from their jobs. And like, I, I mean, I've pastored people who've like lost their jobs because they didn't think it was right to get the vaccine mm-hmm. for religious reasons or for, or for medical reasons relative to stewarding their own bodies. And there's no religious exemption for many religious reasons to not get vaccines like this. And so I know people who were supporting their families with good paying jobs who did believe they shouldn't get the vaccine and were fired from those jobs. 
And now, two months later, we find out that they were right, that their natural immunity was better than vaccine alone, and that vaccine and natural immunity is is statistically insignificant, the difference. And yet, none of them are going to get their jobs back, right? And there's this there's this ancient story about justice. I forget exactly what it was called, but there was this this um, Roman prelate who a Roman soldier came back from from a patrol, and he was supposed to come back with another Roman soldier, and the other Roman soldier wasn't with him. And so it was to be presumed if the two didn't come back together that the one had killed the other. Mm-hmm. And so he sentences the guy who comes back to death. He sends a centurion to put him to death, and in the process of the centurion getting ready to put him to death, the other soldier shows up. Hmm. So the centurion stops the execution and goes back before the prelate. And the prelate sentenced all three men to death hmm. because he says um, the first should have never lost his, his accompaniment and should have never showed up alone in the first place. The second one should not have gotten lost and not been with the guy who came back. So he caused the other one's death because I did the right thing to sentence him to death. And then he sentenced the centurion to death because he stopped the execution that was justly ordained. Hmm. Right. And historically, that's an example of Justice that isn't justice. Hmm. Is it justice? Did all men, all three men commit a crime that under Roman law could be, the death penalty could be administered? Yes. Yes. Should any of the three men have died? No. Hmm. And so this gets back to the example of, okay, those people who didn't get their vaccines two months ago, now that we have evidence that while they did that, they were right. What's justice? Hmm. I think what justice is, is an apology and them giving, being given their, their jobs back immediately. I have my doubts that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so I have trouble stomaching the whole like, you know, if we're really going to be good Christians, we should wear masks a little bit longer while we ignore all of this other stuff about the people whose lives we trample upon as though we don't care, which gets back to, for me, my frustration is that we look at justice through a political lens that is sold to us through a press that is completely non-holistic and Christians too easily fall into, we think we're doing justice, but we're really cheering for the cool kids. And we're going to have to just grow up. Mm-hmm. And yeah, listen, if there's, if I'm going to go to a, to older people's houses and even if they've gotten the vaccine, I think they could have any, I will wear an N95. I'll do everything I can. I think it's, I think that it's foolish and detrimental for me to wear it around the two to five year olds. I think it's abysmally foolish to be asking two year olds to wear masks anywhere. Having like my third grader wearing a mask all day at school, I right. think is ridiculous. So this is a great segue to mm-hmm. the next question we have on COVID. Um, person asks, if we're willing to sue the government for not allowing our kids to return to school, it seems like a double standard when we as a church require our kidsmen, children, and volunteers to wear masks. Is the impact on the social and emotional development of our children not an overreach of government authority and something worth, quote, getting political over? Yeah, so this gets back to this issue of on what principle do you make these decisions, right? And so there's essentially two ways to make the decision. One is, is that you determine in your mind what is under the government's authority and what is not. And if the government makes a declaration in an area that is not their authority, we just don't obey it. And if, or we, we bet, or we have a balancing mechanism that we, that's prudential, right? We're like, okay, how much does this way and how much does that way? So, um, in the United States, the government has more and more moved to the idea where it can govern anything, everything, mm-hmm. right? And through a misinterpretation of two constitutional clauses, the the welfare clause and the interstate commerce clause, over the last hundred years, instead of being focused on like fifteen areas of governance, the federal government has decided they can do basically anything anywhere. Now that's gotten pulled back a little bit, like when OSHA's requirement 
that all businesses make everybody get vaccinated got struck down. Um, that was an example of the courts saying you, you've taken interstate commerce or you've taken the OSHA regulation too far now, which I find very encouraging. But but one of the things that America is more and more has to, and this is this is right now in around the world, people don't realize this, but authoritarianism is surging and it is surging in America, but not in the Donald Trump sense really, and it is surging in Russia and China and like all these other places in the world in a really scary kind of way. And so, so there are a lot of Christians who see that and they say, look, we should just start pushing back everywhere we can push back. And just like, we just need to revolt like Canadian truckers. And I think that, I don't think that is the prudential Christian approach. I, however, there's what's, there's something called, oh, I don't know how often it's called this, but it's the reformers. It's the reformers, um, not fallacy. It's dilemma, the reformers dilemma or the the revolutionaries dilemma, which is this. If you're getting pushed back by someone you feel like you should fight back against, when do you decide it's time to fight mm-hmm. and say enough is enough? We're all going to fight you because the problem is, is everybody who thinks that something bad is happening, they have different last straws. Sure. Right. And so how do you get all those people? But if you don't fight together, you're all going to get killed individually wherever your last straw is. Right. So at what point do you say it's this far and no further at what? And you have to do it before the noose is around your neck. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in the American revolution, it was like a three cent tax. <laughs> they were like, screw this. Uh-uh. Right. We're gonna like we're gonna start a revolution. And at one level, I'm like, that was probably I mean, John Wesley, the great Christian reformer, said that the American Revolution was completely immoral. Hmm. And that's why he thought that. He's like, look, you have a, a governmental sovereign. Romans 13 says you're supposed to obey the government. They tax you three cents because they spent millions of dollars on a war with the French and Native Americans to kill you. We won that war. They protected you. Now you have to pay some of the cost of it. Now you're going to engage in a revolution? That's mm-hmm. totally immoral. But the Americans were like, no, we came to this country to be free. We didn't want the, the king's thumb on our next. And the moment you start to erode that, like we're going to fight. And it wasn't the first thing. It was a number of things, but like that was where they drew the straw. In America right now, it's very difficult to figure out like, well, at what point is government enroach in, in on the land of the free and the home of the brave too much? And the answer is, there's no clear answer to that question, mm-hmm. right? And so for some people, masks are a really, really good example of the government because they see like the Bangladesh study, they see some the Denmark study, these, the Dutch study, I think it was, with these other studies that basically say, look, these masks don't protect you from COVID. Um, but everybody has to wear them. It's a signal of compliance. This is the perfect example because you cannot comply with the government. They can't do much about it. If they do something about it, they're clearly being bullies. You put them in a position where they can't enforce their law, which is exactly what you want to do against an authoritarian sclerotic government. And it doesn't hurt anybody. Like because the mask doesn't do hardly anything, you're not hurting anybody. This is the perfect thing. And other people are like, no, this is the worst thing. Mm. Because I feel like the, they feel like the masks do work. And they're like, no, this is a basic neighbor care thing that's medical in nature. This is if the government ever has a right to be totalitarian, it's now during a medical crisis, mm-hmm. right? And so, and frankly, like I, I'm more sympathetic to the non-mask wearer, but I think that's because of certain things I believe about the disease and things that aren't Christian principle. If I believe different things about that, I would agree with the other side because both are based on Christian principle. So mm-hmm. I think this is really difficult. I, I, my perception is that making kids wear masks is pretty inhuman. Mm-hmm. I think that it is probably bad for their development in ways that we don't yet understand. And that's the same thing I you think said it's about a, I think schooling, it's abusive to them. Mm-hmm. Right. About like yeah. the loss of in-person schooling. So what makes the injustice of the loss of in-person schooling something you're willing to go to court over, but the 
inhumane treatment of masks on kids. Okay. Because like when I think, like what does it cost a two-year-old to wear a mask at church? Mm -hmm. And my answer is, I don't know. Sure. I know that it costs them something. I don't know what it costs them. Like there were a lot of people that were scared that by wearing masks a lot, we were all going to get facial, like facial infections. That hasn't really seemed to bear out. Mm -hmm. People are pretty gross about their masks. And like I put mine on all the time and I'm like, I really need to have better breath. This is terrible. And like we wash it how many how yeah. many times a month? <laughs> right. Six months. <laughs> right. And so like I like I like the, I was open to that being true, but like this is one of those examples where over the course of the pandemic, conservatives are wrong, right? That masks were gonna create all these facial diseases and respiratory diseases. I don't see that bearing out. So then what are the real costs of masks other mm-hmm. than just they suck to wear, right? Um, like as somebody who has a near narcoleptic disorder, I think it does decrease the amount of oxygen I can bring them through natural breathing. I think they make me drowsy Mm -hmm. in ways that make me unproductive and that's really unhelpful. But most of the places I do my work, I don't have to wear a mask. Right. Right. So, but when you, when you talk about children who are learning to make sounds, who are learning to read the musculature of other people's faces, where they're determining whether or not they feel like another human being that they've just met is friend or foe positive, like they can't see the human smile. They can't learn to read the crinkling of the face. They just, they're not getting that. And I think that, and we don't, we have no way to quantify that. Right. And so some conservative people are like, the cost is a hundred out of a hundred. And then some mm. people are like, ah, it's basically zero. And I don't think it's either of those. And I don't know what it is. Sure. Whereas with schooling, I mean, Jay Bhattacharya, who's at Stanford said, look, you can basically graph schooling with life expectancy. Hmm. It's about like 1.5 years per year of schooling. Hmm. up through high school at least. And so like if kids lose a year of schooling, like they just lost 1.5 years of their life on average statistically. You multiply that by all the kids in the country that didn't go to school and that's like 13.5 million years of human life, right? It's it's that that's way more years lost than older people who died from covid. Mm-hmm. And so like it's like very empirical to be like okay, look. Closing schools is a no-go. And, that, and, and then plus, of course, schools is our corporate federal means of daycare mm-hmm. so that parents can be working and productive. So all of that goes away, too. And then, of course, you have the racial problem of disparities of like, who do you think does better with all online education? Well, the answer is two parent homes where you have at least one parent working from home because they're a computer sitter and all of that. And so like, who's going to do better? Well, white families with, that have parents that work at computers. That's who's going to do better or, or families of every ethnicity, but it's going to favor Asian and white ethnicities, right? Mm-hmm. So so for me, that was like so freaking obvious. And especially because all of my progressive and liberal neighbors in the city have been banging on my head about racial disparities in education. Well, there's I just couldn't concoct any way in my mind in which you could send kids home of all races and that kids of the despairing races were going to catch up. Right. It was clear they were going to fall further behind. And so partly because we had teachers willing to teach, um, being open for us made the most sense, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, because remember, I didn't say, I think the public school should be open. We didn't sue for the public school to be right. open. And so that teachers that didn't want to teach had to. Sure. We sued for the right for us to take the risk mm-hmm. to teach and our teachers to do it, which is different. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I just, I feel like my level of dogmatism has to be relative to the prudential question of what the cost is. Because generally speaking, the biblical command about obeying your, the government is universal. Like Romans 13 says, obey the government. Mm-hmm. It does not enumerate a list of rights in which Christians are free from the government. The only one that seems clear is when, when 
um, John and Peter and John right. are told not to preach the gospel. They can't talk about Jesus. And they say, look, we have to obey you or God. Mm-hmm. So we know there's one thing that's 100% empirically the case. Yeah. Um, but I think I can make the argument that there were other things that Christians have disobeyed. And I mean, most people believe this because most people don't think that the civil rights movement was morally wrong. Mm-hmm. But the Bible nowhere says you can disobey the government over racial injustice. But I think most people believe that the Bible accepts that it's morally right to disobey over moral injustice, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know. It's like For me, it's not a gray area in that it's utterly vague. Mm-hmm. Well, and part of it too is, is that I'm a leader. Right. Like I have to do what I think people can be persuaded to follow, or I have to intentionally choose to be a prophet that nobody follows. Mm-hmm. And I'm called as a pastor to try to be a leader. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I can't just do, I can't even do just whatever I think is right. Right. Because my judgment about what is right, I'm laying on everybody I'm leading. Right. But not everybody has the same mechanisms of judgment and how they're discerning it. And I have to lead them too as a pastor. So like for me, like I would love to, I mean, I would take a fairly, at the, early in the pandemic, I would take a very liberal approach. Now I would take a very conservative approach. But in both cases, I would be leaving behind swaths of people that I'm supposed to pastor. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be wrong for me. So part of what's weighing in the decision as well is the feedback that we've received from parents in our, mm-hmm. in our kidsmen about whether they want to see that mask mandate. Right. There's a lot of parents that are glad they're wearing masks and they want masks to be worn. Right. And I can't, I can tell them that I disagree with their deliberation, but I can't tell them they're disobeying the Lord. Right. I think that would be really arrogant on my part. Okay. Well, I mean, it's a really complicated question. Um, but thanks for taking the Hence time. the importance of it. love. Like just like <laughs> love and a com- I think also commitment to the truth. I think yeah. one thing that has really failed, two things that have failed massively, I think in American culture during COVID is graciousness or yeah. love yeah. and truth. I think there's been an enormous amount of willingness to suppress the truth by lots of people. Um, I think conservative, some conservatives that I think were a little over the top were willing to say things were true that we didn't know were true or that turned out to, to be false. Mm-hmm. I think that did happen, especially early on. Um, and I think that the left, American left, was more willing to suppress the truth or things people were saying and making arguments for that they didn't like what that would do. And they used truth instrumentally in ways I think were highly destructive to public faith. And I think public faith in the in the uh, the media and the government is like super low. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really sad. And I think I think we failed in love. I think loving our neighbors who we disagree with was an enormous failure. Yeah. And it showed that we only were willing to love our neighbor where we felt like we were safe. Hmm. But the minute there was some kind of stress that came from this disease that wasn't particularly virulent, that is deadly. I mean, in this context. We were willing to just treat people terribly, mm-hmm. including throw them out of their jobs, destroy their livelihood, which, as I've said earlier in this podcast, is a fundamental right, according to the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Like separating, some, somebody, separating somebody from their livelihood is an injustice that is on a very high level in the scriptures. And blathering about the idea that like, well, it's a private company can do what it wants, I think is foolishness. Mm-hmm. Because private companies can do wicked things all the time. Sure. And if I fired somebody because there's all kinds of ways in which laws say I can't fire people, right? And in all kinds of businesses, there's all kinds of government laws that say why you can and can't fire people. And then to just shrug your shoulders at the thing you approve of, I think just shows an enormous amount of hypocrisy, which I think is a form of dishonesty. Mm -hmm. And Christians just cannot 
do that. One of the 10 commandments is don't bear false witness against your neighbor, right? Don't lie at someone else's expense, which is literally what we're talking about here. And then of course, in Revelation, there's the whole liars will have their place in the lake of fire. I mean, God is very serious about telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And so, man, I just, I think that, um, I just think that I'm encouraged by that because I think that when the ungodliness of our culture is revealed, if we would live in a godly way as Christians, we would really shine like lights in the darkness. Hmm. You know, if we, if if we we chose, if we would would not hate our neighbor, um, we would shine brighter than we have. Right. So. All right. I'm going to end on a less serious note. This is going back to the Advent series. Um, so one of the more memorable metaphors that you've used recently was about the, uh, the camel kidneys. So someone wants to know where you come up with your metaphors. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't have a good answer to that. Like, <laughs> um, I think I actually, I mean, I kind of answered this on Sunday morning when somebody asked about that. Like, where do you, like, how do you schedule things? So you read this much that you get the blah, blah, blah. There is something about, I don't know if it's, I don't really know if it's my temperament or if it's my outlook on the world that causes me to like trap all these things that can clarify meanings. So on one level, it might just be my temperament. I just have a interconnection. Like I see interconnections kind of way of looking at the world as opposed to like merely linear logic, right? So it might be that. It also may be the ADD. It's like the diffuse attention, paying attention to everything. (laughs) It also might be that I think Richard John Newhouse is right when he said the secret to being universally interesting is to be universally interested. And if you believe in God that God created creatively, then virtually everything is fascinating. And so, for for example, like there's almost no job that I wouldn't want to do. Like I know some people are like, I I know exactly what job I want to do. It's this one. And I'm like, I don't know. They're all, a lot of them are pretty fascinating. You know, like I could live, I could imagine myself living 50 lives and doing 50 different occupations Mm -hmm. and being just as fascinated and and feel like I know so little about the thing I'm doing Mm -hmm. as I do right now. So, I mean, when I was in seminary, I discovered that there are books specifically full of like jokes for your sermons or um, anecdotes for your sermon illustrations. So what you're telling me is that you don't have a book from which you opened it up and you said like, ah, the camel kidneys, this will be perfect. No, because I think I think when you do that, especially in like literature and stuff, people see through it and they they see you as engaging in a kind of dishonesty. (laughs) Like. I remember um, I was listening to one preacher preach and he quoted Eugene O'Neill's poem or poem play called Lazarus Laugh. It's always three points in a poem. That's, yeah. that's, that's what I grew up with. Yeah, but he was quoting this poem and he was talking about death and resurrection and he quoted this line from that poem and or this, this play. And I had actually read the play. Mm. And in that play was an exchange that was a way better illustration. <laughs> Of what he was saying. Sure. But I just knew he got that out of a commentary or he got it out of a book or, or something right. like that. And I thought, and, he, and, he, and the thing is, is that like when, when pastors deliver those kinds of illustrations, they deliver them like they read the book. Sure. And they're like, you know, and then it says this in the play. Well, you can't be like, I haven't read this, but I saw this in a book and I thought maybe someone out there might get it. So here okay, we go. You say that, Hannah, but I have literally <laughs> done that. Like, I, like I've said before, okay, I have not read this book. Sure. But this is from the book and it's a really good illustration. Right. Right. So, um, but like, even like I quoted Oedipus, I think on Sunday by Sophocles and it's been a long time since I read it, Right. but I read a synopsis of the whole play before I quoted an event Mm -hmm. so that I would know it was in context for the whole, for the real play. 
So I knew what, hap- what mm-hmm. happened. So like when I've quoted from like Brothers Karamazov or those, like I've read those whole books mm-hmm. and I know what I'm talking about relative to because otherwise I just, anyway, so the, the point is that I think that, yeah, you, you have to have an avid reading schedule, but part of it is just like, you're just, you just gotta be looking, you know what's confusing about the world. And if you're working, part of it is there was a, there was a resolution by Jonathan Edwards. One of his 70 or so resolutions was whenever I notice a problem in divinity, I will seek at my earliest convenience to solve it. So he's like, anytime I see like a problem in theology, like that needs to be figured out. Whenever I get a chance, I'm going to try to figure it out. That's just how I'm going to live my life. And I have a similar one. It's kind of like, wherever I see something confusing for Christians, mm-hmm. I'm going to try to find a way to make it clear. Like give them a way, to, not the perfect way to think about it. I mean, not, maybe not God's truth, but like a way to conceptualize it that is truthful and clear enough that they can operate in their faith. Mm-hmm. Right. And, that's my passion. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I want people who are confused to be like, Oh, that's really clear. That's really helpful. I know mm-hmm. how to live now. I know how to believe God and how to act. Mm-hmm. That's my, that's like my whole felt calling my whole passion about how to help Christ's sheep. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I do the other stuff in pastoring because it's all necessary and important, but what I'm naturally passionate about and gifted for is that mm-hmm. I have a certain kind of mind. So this question took us to a place that's very flattering to you. Um, let's end just for fun with a slightly more hostile question, which is why do you have so many pictures in your <laughs> slides that you never explain? You just skip past them and we like, we look right. at them and we say, why is that there? And okay, so there's two we don't prin- know. There's two principles here. One is sometimes I never intend to explain them. They are a riddle joke that you have to get. So, so this is for like, you know, 15% of people or maybe even 5% of people at church are abnormally intelligent and they get what I'm saying before I'm even done saying it and they're way ahead. And that's just an extra math problem for them (laughs) to get and be amused by. And some people get it. I think you should put an asterisk by those. I could do that. Because some of us look at them and we're never going to get to the conclusion. We're just going to sit there and wonder, like, why is that cartoon character there? Like a bonus thing. And we're going to miss five or ten minutes of what you're saying because we're just looking at the cartoon. Well, usually... So the asterisks will tell me, like, unless... That's just a bonus. If it doesn't immediately occur to you, move on. Move on, yeah. Yeah, okay. (laughs) And the second is, I do intend to refer to it. It's usually some kind of illustration and I just am out of time. Right. Because people don't... I mean, so let me give you a quick blurb on this. Anybody who talks weekly... One of two things is true about them. Either A, they say the same thing every week in a new location. That mm-hmm. is stand-up comics, for example. Or if they talk every day to every week, like people on the media or whatever, they have writing teams. Sure. They have a group of people or it's all they do. Okay. I have like three more full-time jobs besides preaching. My average prep for preaching is between six and 10 hours a week. Sometimes it's considerably less than that. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a couple hours mm-hmm. to come up with a new oratory for a group of people that's supposed to be helpful for them that's on the level that they expect as though I had spent half my work week doing it bearing the weight of representing the divine word of God yes <laughs> yes right and I'm it's a, not like I'm, you're just talking about gardening you're like well what am I going to come up with this week right and, and I have a personality particularly unsuited to doing it well sure. and so um it's a miracle it goes this well you know <laughs> and so so what people are going to find is, is like yeah it's not that well prepared like my goal is never to look pretty. My goal is to get on base. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like in baseball, my, one of my preaching professors said, they're like, listen, your job is not to look perfect or, or hit a home run. You're just trying to get on base. You got to get a single, get a walk, hit a blooper. It doesn't matter. As long as you get on base. Four bases a month. Yeah. Right. And so that, and that is how I think about it. 
right? Like I'm just trying to get a base. Some weeks I'm going to hit a double. Every once in a while I hit a home run, but it's about getting on base and not striking out. And so I don't really care if I don't get to my third point or, I mean, I care, but my goal is, did I walk away? Did I give people something Mm -hmm. for this week? Did I give people something of the word of God respoken? Have I clarified something? Have I helped something? Have I, have I pleaded with them to consider something or to be free of something? Have I done the work of giving the word? Mm -hmm. And I don't think too much about, was it all proportional? Did it lay out right? Did people think that the, the, you know, the way I said it was cute. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to make it memorable. If I can say it away, that's memorable. That's great. Sure. But when you have to be a sermomatic, when every Sunday just comes one after another, it just isn't that, it just doesn't work that way. And so all you can do is like, keep your net open, come up with as pointed illustrations you can get, try to make things clear, study the passage as best you can. But, um, the problem, here's the problem. Everybody wants the church to do 500 things. Mm -hmm. They want us to like be a political action committee and to feed the poor and to help in public schools and to have our own schooling system and to have a great children's ministry and to do the blah, 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 and to do the such and such and to do the what, what not have that support group and have this counseling service Mm -hmm. and be like for me to do all your pre-marriage counseling and everything, right? We're doing like 45 things. Well, it turns out when you do 45 things, everything is just okay. Mm Mm-hmm. And so back when pastors used to preach and visit, they spent 30 hours a week on their sermons, a lot of them, and it was great, mm-hmm. you know? So, and people think, well, the church is big enough. Shouldn't Nick have enough time? I mean, don't they have other staff members? And I, my response is, please be an intern at this church then, like, because you don't <laughs> understand what's really going on. So here's our call. Um, we are looking for interns. Oh, yeah. There's always room for interns. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for joining us for this episode. If there's a topic you'd like us to discuss, send it to podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you would like to be an intern, you can write to us at info at highpointchurch.org. <laughs> yes, you can. And otherwise, we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like those. We hope this episode is helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thank you for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.